friends, and welcome back to the Healthier Together podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a writer and cookbook author living in Brooklyn, where I am finally, finally back after two weeks on the road. I think I recorded my last intro in my friend's closet in her house in Venice, where I was staying with her. I was in Montana for a week, and then I went to LA for a week to do a bunch of press and promotion for Healthier Together, and also to host my LA event, where I got to meet so many of you guys, which was absolutely amazing. I did a panel with Sophie Jaffe and Courtney Swan. We talked about the things you're not supposed to talk about. So things like money and sex and body image and just answering really specific gritty questions about things that people are often really uncomfortable discussing. And we recorded all of that for the podcast. So definitely look out for that in a future episode. I think you guys are going to love it. I have a ton of events coming up. I have a Nashville event. I have a Seattle event, a Portland event. So if you want to see me in the future, I'm hosting amazing panels with fabulous women at all of these events. So definitely check out lizmoody.com and click on the events tab to stay up to date and you guys can come and hang out with me. I'll sign your book. We can drink a glass of wine. We can eat some snacks. It'll be really, really fun. And I love getting to meet you guys in real life because you guys know that I am all about community, community, community. I know I'm like kind of boring about it now, but I think it's the most important thing in the world. And I think real relationships are the most important thing in the world. So speaking of that, Healthier Together is still doing really, really well. I'm so loving seeing all of the recreations of the recipes you guys are making. So if you are making recipes, please, please send them to me on Instagram. Tag me in them so I can see them. Also, if you happen to be making your recipes with like a cute kid or a friend or a romantic partner, send pics of that. I love seeing like the real people cooking the recipes in addition to the food. I just think it brings the whole thing to life and I can picture you guys in your kitchen and having a great time and I don't know, it just like warms my heart. And if you haven't left an Amazon review of the book yet and you are loving it, I would massively appreciate that. Like the podcast, those reviews, I don't quite understand it all, but it definitely helps with the algorithms and it helps people find the stuff better. So if you like the podcast, leave a podcast review. If you like the book, leave an Amazon review or one on Barnes & Noble or wherever you bought it. And if you bought it at your local bookstore, good for you. Local bookstores are the backbone of America, and I really appreciate you supporting it. All right, let's get into today's episode. I really like this one. So I feel like the vibe of this one is if you want to get excited about cooking healthy food again, this is the episode for you. I was honestly feeling a little underwhelmed by the idea of cooking healthy food when I recorded this one because I'd just been in nonstop cooking mode and promo mode and I'd just been so deep in the food world for quite a while by the time that I sat down to actually record this in my kitchen. But my guest, who is Anna Jones, if you're one, you're like, who is who is this person she's talking about? It's Anna Jones. She is a best-selling cookbook author. She wrote The Modern Cook's Year, which is her newest book. And also A Modern Way to Cook and A Modern Way to Eat, which are her two previous books. She's also a columnist at The Guardian, which is like a really major newspaper in England, which is where she's from. You'll see she has a very soothing, calming, asmr accent this entire time. So I think you guys will like that. I, I felt very calm and anxiety-free listening to her and very much like, oh, it'll be okay. I can handle myself in the kitchen. She came up under Jamie Oliver. She was on his TV show for a while and he kind of I don't know, tutored her as a chef. So she worked for him for a while and she's a very famous vegetarian chef. She's won all kinds of awards. And so in this episode, I sort of grill her about a bunch of different things that make somebody 
you know, make it easy for people to get into the kitchen and cook really healthy meals on a normal weeknight or a normal day. So we talked to Anna about her top tips for adding a ton of flavors to things. We talk about like the pantry staples that she always has on hand. We talk about how to make vegetarian food taste really, really good. Uh, We talk about her go-to breakfast that she always makes, which kind of surprised me, honestly, but it has a ton of flavor and I'm definitely going to try it. And she also talks about how she she now is the mom of a three-year-old son. And we talk about how that's completely changed her approach to cooking and eating, and it's broadened her perspective generally. So I found that really, really interesting. So she talks about her breakfast, but then she also talks about how she modifies it for her three-year-old. She also talks about what, like her go-to 10-minute dinner. Like if you if you have to make dinner super, super fast, what does that look like? And just lots of like fun little cooking secrets and cooking tips and ingredient tips and things that are going to make you get really excited about including vegetables in your daily diet again. We also talk about how she got into her dreamy, dreamy career. She was working a desk job, like a nine-to-five desk job, and she gives me in this episode, I think, the singular best tip for figuring out what your passion career would be, which she actually used and then within three days, 180'd her entire life and now has this completely different career where she's a best-selling author and she potters around in her kitchen all day. So that sort of blew my mind. And I'm definitely taking a lot of inspiration from that. And we talk about what her day-to-day life is like as a recipe developer. Like, what is it like developing recipes? Where do you get your ideas from? What is it like writing a cookbook? What are things people don't know about writing a cookbook? So it gives you a fun little sneak peek into that process. And then finally, we talk about some of her own health struggles, why she became a vegetarian, how her general feeling and her body changed after being a vegetarian and the ways that she expected and the ways that she did not expect and different sort of wellness practices that she incorporates in her life, including a fabulous organizational sort of time hacky wellness method that I'm very into and I'm 100% going to try. So if you guys are interested in that, definitely come, you try it and then come hang out on Instagram. I'm at Liz Moody and you can tell me how it went and I will tell you how I'm doing and we will see if we're more organized, productive people together. Um, I, you know, I have medium hopes for myself because I'm truly the least organized human on the entire planet, but maybe it'll work for me and uh, maybe I'll be super productive and I won't waste so much time browsing Instagram and uh, watching YouTube videos that don't do anything for my life. So we'll see. Um, If you guys like this episode, tell a friend, listen to it with somebody, get in the kitchen and cook something while you're listening to it. Go tell Anna. She's at wearefood on, on Instagram. I think there's like an underscore we underscore R underscore food. And come tell me I'm at Liz Moody on Instagram. I love talking about these episodes. I love sometimes you guys will like post photos of where you're listening to it. If you're on a walk or if you're foam rolling or something like that. And I love just picturing how the episode is fitting into your life. So that's super, super fun for me. So please, please keep doing it at Liz Moody on Instagram. And that's it. I'll let you guys listen to it now. And I hope you guys really enjoy. Anna, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm very, very happy to be here. Yeah, I well, let's kick it off with your book because your book is like spectacular and I don't want to just like weave it in as like this is a promo for the book because the book is one of the <laughs> best books I've I see probably 10 cookbooks a day and your book is like one of my favorite, favorite, favorite books. Oh, that's so kind. Thank you. So can you tell me a little bit about it and the development process for it? 
so yeah, this is, so this is my third book. Um, and the kind of, I guess, difference from my last book. So that this book's all about kind of seasonal cooking. It's like a year in my kitchen. So following the fruits and vegetables, all my recipes are vegetarian. So vegetables are kind of at the center of everything. Um, I write about. So it's following kind of the, the arc of the year in terms of fruits and vegetables and seasonality, but also the kind of mood in the kitchen and mm. those moments in the year when you want to eat different things. Maybe it's the more indulgent time kind of around Christmas or Thanksgiving, or it's like a, you know, fresher, cleaner time, like round about where we are now in spring. So yeah, it was, um, it's my biggest book yet. It's like 250 plus. It's a so, yeah. It is like... <laughs> It's it could be like a coffee table book. It could be like a doorstopper yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, it could be a doorstop. I also feel like when people carry it home, I need to maybe give them an additional chiropractor. Free <laughs> chiropractor yeah, visit in case, with, in case it hurts purchase. their back. So yeah, it 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 was a really I kind of wrote it over a year, so it was actually a really lovely process because quite a few of my other books have come together a bit quicker than that. Um, but I wanted to kind of be rooted in the different ingredients as they were coming up and the different Oh, so did times you write spring in spring? Yeah. So oh, I, wow. I, 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 tr- as much as possible. There are a few switches and, you know, a few times I had to buy asparagus in December and test a recipe, but as much as possible, I tried to like be true to, to the kind of, um, yeah, the, the ebb and flow of the year because it felt like it would come across more naturally there. And, um, yeah, I didn't intend to write actually such a massive book but I just kind of like I just kept going it just kept the recipes kept coming out and I I actually have divided the book into six seasons in the end just because um, because you thought the calendar like the normal seasons wasn't enough it wasn't enough yeah I just I I, I thought it was my responsibility to just add a couple (laughs) of seasons um no I think more just in cooking I felt like the you know winter I've I've kind of put winter in two sections because I feel like especially you know in the in the UK and here because you have Thanksgiving as well that run up to kind of Christmas that first turn to when you get excited to eat a soup and you really want to eat yeah. root vegetables and there's like a slightly more indulgent kind of spin on your cooking even though most of my recipes are pretty you know healthy and definitely vegetable focused I think it's a different energy in eating that time of year and then I think everything's a different like I'm excited about winter until mm. January 1st and then I deeply hate winter yeah. and I well, just want it to be over exactly it yeah like, you know I don't want to carry on eating roasted root vegetables like through January and February so then I switch things up it's not necessarily I'm not a detox in January person I think yeah. it's like the worst possible time of the year to detox but um, wait why is it the worst possible time of the year to I, detox I just feel like there's I feel like the short days it's quite dark it's just too harsh because you've gone ah. from this like massive celebration of Christmas. Then all of a sudden you're like taking everything away. Um, and so for me, like spring this time of year it's is a went- much more natural time for me to like step into eating some, you know, soup, salads, like more fresh, clean, healthful food well and you have a spring clean in your book yeah, right yeah. like a gentle spring clean exactly, which I love yeah. and it just feels it feels much more natural to me because those green foods are coming about you know all the shoots and leaves and it's bright and there's lots to be you know super excited about yeah so if you are taking away you know some of the parts of your diet that perhaps are aren't serving you yeah. but you <laughs> maybe still really enjoy and you know and I, I feel like winter is a much more homely time. It's much more, you know, it's much more sitting on the couch. It's much more having friends over for dinner. Whereas, okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, I cook really differently in January and February. It's it, Even though I don't do a detox, it is more broth. It is more, you know, 
yeah, like warm salads, that kind of thing. So I wanted to separate those. And then the other season I've separated is spring because I feel like definitely in the UK, if you walk into like, um, you know, a farmer's market or a store in kind of the 1st of March and you work, walk in on the kind of 28th of May, they're both kind of under the catchment of spring, but the things you will get will be utterly different. different. Um, so I kind of have, have separated that out as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't think I have license to add an extra two seasons. Yeah, well, can we like name our extra seasons? <laughs> yeah. Like good winter and bad yeah. winter. Yeah, exactly. Early spring and summer spring yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I called. I called the beginning this bit we're in now like the herald of spring because it it's got so much you're classy and british and <laughs> you're just like the herald of spring well, i just think it's got so much potential like yeah. everyone there's an energy here in new york at the moment about you know that there's blue skies it's the first couple of warm days like people are feel excited about yeah. you know the change in what they're going to eat the first asparagus whatever and it's the same in london at the moment and i do feel like it's a it's a time of a bit of promise, but it's promise and hope. And then the end of spring is completely different because you know, you've got all those fruits, you've got all those vegetables yeah. and it's much more abundant. Can you walk us through what the process of developing a recipe actually looks like? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, so if I'm writing a book, I'll generally try and sort of work the book out into rough chapters already and I'll write recipe titles. And I do the same with the column I write for The Guardian every week as well. I'll kind of agree some titles with my editor and then. And where do you, where do those come from? Like do um, they? Sometimes for, for my column, sometimes it'll be a theme. Like a recent one I wrote was on tahini or cauliflower or birthday parties. It can be quite random. Um, for the books, it depends on, you know, which book it is and what it's going to be. But I just, I try and look at it and in each chapter have a balance of, you know, soups, stews, pastas, tray bakes, like, or sheet pan dinners, which I think is probably a better way of describing it here. Um, so I try and make sure each chapter has a balance. And then there's always, I just keep, I keep a long list of like recipe ideas or have like, you know, shots on my Instagram things that I think I would love to kind of recreate or list stuff from restaurants. So that's kind of how. Do you get the idea though ever? Like, I feel like we see so much food. You have exposure mm. to so many recipes yeah. these days on Instagram and in cookbooks, on websites, whatever, that sometimes I'm like, there's nothing left to make. Like everything's mm. been created at this point. I do definitely get that feeling. And I think with, I'm actually working on a, a, another book for the UK um, that's going to come out in a year or so. And um, so I've been at home sort of writing that. And I did definitely feel a bit of writer's block around that. Um, so how do you break through that? I think it's just sitting with it. I think I read this brilliant book and, and the starting quote was like, you know, actually 60% of the writing happens while you're doing that thinking, while you have that block, you know. Um, and definitely, I know it's going to sound really ridiculous and fairly trite, but, you know, I do think writing is a bit of a stream of consciousness. Like I don't wake up with like, 260 recipes in my head and know the like layout of what's going to happen it's you know it, it's sitting down it's getting you know the pans in my hand it's sitting at the computer it's kind of thinking about all the nuances thinking about the boring stuff of like is this recipe going to be easy for someone to make you right know? um so 
yeah, I think that's kind of how I break through it. And I think more and more I'm finding my inspiration is actually from like really mundane things. I think when I started as a young chef, I wanted to be like a really weird ingredient, like using ramps or pink peppercorns or whatever. And I still bring those in, in certain ways, but I, I think my inspiration has become much more humble, like to actually just help people get dinner on the table in a life-friendly way. So so do you like think about, would you like survey your friends and be like, what are your problems with getting dinner on the table and try to sort of solve those problems? Yeah, I actually, I, I do with my friends and I have quite a good like conversation with the people who follow me on Instagram as well. What's on, your on, Instagram handle? My Instagram is we are food. Um, but if you type in Anna Jones, it will pop right up. Wonderful. Hopefully. So... Yeah. And I have a really nice dialogue. And I think that's one of the really wonderful things about um, Instagram and social media in general is this ability to kind of really connect with your audience and um, and the people who buy and make your books and understand what's... What um, are some of the problems important. that have like people have told you that you've tried to address? I, I think a lot of people, um, I think time is definitely the major one. I think people just don't schedule the time to cook that they used to myself included you know yeah. I can cook all day and still when I have to get dinner on the table you know for my family I still want to do it in like 25 minutes yep. so I absolutely understand that pressure um so I think time is a major one I think you know the the ease of buying ingredients I think is another one um that people are really really keen on I think people just want to be able to like remember what's in a recipe rather than walk around a grocery store like scrolling through recipes yeah that's the number um, one feedback I've gotten with my book is mm. like oh this is a a manageable looking number of ingredients and yeah, so many yeah. people were like you pick up a book and I think because chefs have that instinct to be like this is so crazy mm, this is so mm, different mm, and mm. they'll do like 15 20 ingredients and yeah. then it feels really intimidating I think it does feel intimidating and I think people just also it feels economically it feels like yeah. a lot to spend if you're buying like dried lime powder or whatever are you going to use that again right it takes up cupboard space it's in considering all of these things and I also think people are really keen now on just having some you know having one pan having one yeah tray, like those things where you're not using like everything in the kitchen cleaning sucks yeah, that's like totally sucks, if yeah. I had a little gnome that came in and cleaned my house every day, my husband and I would never fight. Yeah, that would literally be my dream. If someone could just fold, also fold all the washing once. It's oh, done. yeah, the gnome would mind, do that. I don't mind doing the washing. It's the fold. No, it's same. Fold, we yeah. we just have a big pile that like stacks Great. up to yeah. our ceiling. Yeah, I'm so glad that everyone <laughs> that you have the same situation. Okay, um, so you have your list of titles and then where does it go from there? So from there, then I will sort of focus in on what the main ingredient is or what the, um, you know, the style of recipe might be. So, you know, to take an example, if I was like making like some kimchi fried rice or something, the first thing I will always start with is a massive Google search of everything that already exists. Um, that's, I don't do that because I'm so afraid of like, in a, like getting something in my head, not being aware it's in my head and then copying. Yeah. Well, I already have a really strong idea of what the recipe I want to okay. have in the title. So I'll usually like write a few ingredients that I think are going to be there, but I'm always really keen on my recipe, not being the same as any anybody recipe. else. Okay. So I do like quite a big Google search, um, and just check that, you know, it's not an idea that because with with the way we consume food media, sometimes I'll like come up with an idea and realize it's something I've seen on Instagram or whatever. Without so, realizing. Without realizing. So I just try and make sure that there is a level of originality. And then from there, I'll. Wait. And so what if you do that Google search and it's, you've like come up with like a 
a cake or something mm. like a dark chocolate cake and then you realize that that exists will you try to twist it or tweak it yeah maybe i'll try and sometimes i'll just if, if it's too close and you'll just feels, let it go. i'll just let it go but if it's some um, something that i feel like um can be different enough or i'll perhaps take it down another flavor route mm. or i'll you know just turn it from you know a chocolate cake into some brownies or i'll add some teeny it just it just kind of um informs what yeah. I'm doing I feel like you know there are enough cookbooks in the world and if my cookbook is a cookbook just full of recipes that already exist then what's the point I actually have no interest in writing it you know um so I want to always bring something that feels fresh and new and different so um which so, so yeah I'll I'll kind of do that google and then once I feel like I've got the all clear <laughs> creatively I'll um I'll sort of write like a almost like a bullet point recipe. So I'll write down the ingredients I think I want to use, not necessarily all the quantities, but just a list of those things. And then a couple of, you know, quick notes on what I think the recipe will be. And then, and then I'll get up and cook it. Um, and try and kind of like, I'll, I'll cook it without writing anything down. Cause I sort of have a bad memory for most things, but quite a weird, um, a weird sort of photographic memory for 55 grams. You're, a you're like <laughs> yeah. a measurement savant. Measurement, like I have a weird, <laughs> I have a weird, weird memory for numbers, but not much else. So I kind of, um, I'll cook it and I'll tweak it. And then sometimes I'll cook it again, and then I'll write the recipe up. So, um, and, and sometimes it won't be good and it will just, I'll, I'll, it's the you worst. Know, we'll, we'll eat it, but we won't, it won't necessarily go in the book. I just like, I, I don't, how do you emotionally, like, I just find it so terrible when mm. I make a recipe and I've spent like 10 hours in the kitchen mm. or whatever mm. and it's just like a fail it's so depressing yeah it is really quite depressing um and I feel like you know that definitely the more I write recipes that happens less and less and even before I started writing my cookbooks I developed recipes for other people for seven or eight years so I mean it does happen much more in the baking sphere than the yeah, savory the sphere because I feel like the savory thing I've usually, unless I'm really taking steps into a cuisine I don't know about. Like, well, and savory, you can save it. Like savory, you yeah. can be like, oh, I'll add a little more acid yeah, or something. Exactly. And baking, or, yeah, you're just screwed. Yeah, yeah. Baking is just done. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So sometimes it just won't go in the book, but we'll have it for our dinner. Um, sometimes it'll be like a straight off hit and I'll just write it up as it is. And then sometimes it'll need like another test or another couple of tests. And I have a couple of really trusted friends who are recipe testers. And sometimes if I'm really stuck on something or if I can't work out if it's a real winner, I'll just like send it to them and say, look, can you have a go at this? Tell me what you think. Um, because I really appreciate that feedback because I think writing in any medium can be quite a solitary thing. And yes. sometimes you can like get stuck in a in a kind of spiral and recently I realized like all the recipes I was writing I was writing had like lemongrass like lime leaves like I was stuck in this kind of like Thai sort of um situation and then I looked at everything I'd written that week and I was like I mean I'm definitely supporting the lemongrass industry (laughs) (laughs) how many Um, do you do in a week uh I on my recipe writing days I try and get like four or five recipes done in a day so I just kind of like lock myself away. Don't do anything else. Like t- I'll do my emails for like half an hour in the morning and half an hour. That's night, amazing. But, then, but I I have to have that focus because I I'm not a piecemeal person. Yeah, I'm, I'm a real all or nothing sort of character. So I have to like dedicate the whole day to it. Get myself totally into it. And I feel like 
I feel like my best work comes out of that. I feel like if I'm just like doing one recipe and then doing some emails and then doing something else, I can't quite get myself in the kind of. Well, they say that the, the multitasking is like killing us as a society, mm. like trying to do a little bit of this, checking our email. Absolutely. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I actually have read quite a lot about that kind of way of working. So I try and do at least like a four hour stretch. Mm. Um, and if I'm doing writing where I'm not standing up and cooking, um, I've started using this thing called the Pomodoro method. Have you seen that? No, where what's the Pomodoro method? It started method? because the guy um, used a timer that was shaped like a tomato, obviously Pomodoro, <laughs> he was an Italian guy. And um, you basically work in these short chunks of time, so like 25 minutes, and then you you basically have like a five minute break and then once you've got to like four blocks of that 25 minutes and five minute break you have like a longer break yeah. so it's kind of it, it kind of maximizes your productivity then you have a little break do something else make a cup of tea whatever That's and it's, it, it's just quite a nice discipline actually because I'm I'm not a dis I'm not a disciplined person <laughs> That's so interesting. I'm like trying to think of how much I could get done in 25 minutes, but I bet it would be a lot if I wasn't constantly like going to my Gmail tab. Or exactly. Like exactly. That. So yeah. I just try and turn like all my Wi-Fi, everything off that 25 minutes. And then, you know, you can make a cup of tea or just have a walk around the room or get some fresh air for a couple of minutes and it and refreshes. So yeah. It. Yeah. No, it's really good. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. I talk a lot about this in my book, but my diet is around 80% vegetables with the other 20% being animal protein, legumes, and grains. I am super picky about my meat though, and there are literally zero stores in my Brooklyn neighborhood that have the grass-fed and finished and pasture-raised products that I want. And honestly, I would rather eat no meat than eat meat that's inhumanely raised or filled with the kind of hormones that I do not want in my body. That is why I was so excited when I discovered ButcherBox a few years back. They send incredibly high-quality animal proteins frozen directly to your door, and this stuff is really frozen too. Sometimes it would sit out all day while I was at work, and when I came home, it was still rock solid. Beyond being far better for the environment, this type of meat is way better for our bodies. Grass-fed beef, for example, has lower levels of unhealthy fats and higher levels of omega-3s than other types of meat, in addition to vitamins A and E and a ton of other health benefits. And if you want even more omega-3s, ButcherBox now carries wild Alaskan sockeye salmon. While we sometimes defrost our products in the fridge, more often I'll actually cook it straight from frozen, which I love because then no matter what, if plans change or if you're too tired to cook, your meat never goes bad and you never waste all that money. I'll pop the frozen meat straight into my Instant Pot, which is like an amazing life hack, or I'll use the ground beef to make my way more veggies bolognese, which is a weeknight staple in our house. I'm such a huge advocate for healthy eating being accessible to everyone. I'm sure you guys have heard me talk about this before. It's why I don't use fancy ingredients in my recipes. I want everybody to be able to make them no matter where they live or what grocery stores they have access to. And I think ButcherBox, which ships nationwide, is a huge step in the right direction. If you want to try it for yourself, go to butcherbox.com slash Liz Moody. That's butcherbox.com slash Liz Moody, like my name. I'll also leave a link in the show notes. And if you use that link or use the URL that I just said, you'll get $20 off your first order plus two packs of bacon and two pounds of breakfast sausage, totally free. I love ButcherBox. Having a stash of healthy animal protein in my freezer just makes it so much easier to have dinner on the table on any given night. And I hope you love them too. DM me on Insta at Liz Moody if you need ideas for what to make. Now let's get back to the episode. So your recipes are vegetarian. Do you self-identify as vegetarian? Mm, 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 mm. And when did that start? Uh, so I became vegetarian about 10 years ago now. Okay. Um, so I was working at the time for Jamie Oliver, this 
Who's that? Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like this British chef. He's written a few cookbooks, you know. Um, yeah. I'm so, actually, <laughs> I love in London flying out of Gatwick because I don't like go to his restaurants normally, yes. but he has his Italian does, restaurant yeah. in Gatwick and it is such a treat to go there and like get his food. Yeah, on my way out here, I got a little snack from there. I felt very nostalgic. <laughs> um, no, he's he, he's a he's a fantastic guy and makes delicious food and was wonderful to work for. Um, but I was working there for him, like doing food styling and recipe development and I just felt like a little bit jaded with food. I think I was cooking all day, every day, working quite hard, quite frenetically. It was when his business was like growing exponentially. It was such an exciting time to be there. But as with any business that's growing fast, it required a quite lot, a lot of, of commitment yeah. from the people that worked at it. So um, and I think I was like just tasting a lot of food and felt a little bit jaded and a little bit unexcited by food, which I know sounds... Um, very spoilt of me, but um, it was the reality. So I just decided to, for six weeks, be a bit more conscious about food, give up meat, fish. I actually gave up like dairy and tried to just. Oh, you went like full vegan. Yeah, just uh, just be a bit. Um, just to make yourself think about food yeah, more, just, essentially. Just kind of, I guess, reset things, like press that reset button and kind of, I thought I could just go back to it with like, you know, a new kind of like appreciation of flavor, mm. texture, all of those things. And, you know, it was great. It worked really well. But the moment I took kind of meat and fish out of my diet, I I just felt much better in myself. In um, what ways? I think I just felt a bit lighter. I felt like my digestion was way better. Um, I think I lost a bit of weight, but that wasn't necessarily the aim. It was just, I think that, you know, that is extra like few pounds that just kind of hang around seem to just like just go away without me even thinking about it. And it wasn't, it wasn't in any way meant to be a diet. Um, cause I'm not a diet person. Um, but yeah, I just felt really good. And I think the thing that I felt really excited about was it kind of opened up my cooking in a different way. I think mm -hmm. I'd always, you know, thought about dishes with like meat or fish at the center and then what the vegetables were going to kind of do around that. And, um, all of a sudden I was kind of just didn't have that blueprint anymore. So I was thinking about, you know, what mood I was in or what country I wanted to go to, you know, in, on my plate, in my kitchen or my inspiration just became much more nuanced. And I think I just had to think a bit more about kind of layering flavor, you know, that kind of sweet, salty, acidic you know, that verdant green flavor, bring you an umami, which obviously you just don't get naturally as much. How, what do you do for umami from like a vegetarian or particularly like a vegan perspective? Because um, I think of it as like Parmesan, sardines. Yeah. yeah, there is lots of that. I mean, great now that there are actually legitimate vegan cheeses that you can eat and not yeah. <laughs> dry wretch. Um, <laughs> so um, I, I use those sometimes, but definitely like, uh, miso I use mm. a lot I think that's a really really brilliant way of bringing in some umami flavor which um, is a fermented soybean paste so yeah. it also has uh, gut benefits which yeah. is nice yeah yeah, it's yeah, a fermented yeah, yeah, food. yeah yeah it's absolutely delicious and I feel I always feel really good when I have lots of miso in my diet but so I use it in broths but I'll use it in dressings I'll toss roasted vegetables in it um you know there's lots of different ways of bringing that in I think um Mushrooms, particularly like dried mushrooms, those Asian ones mm. are a really brilliant way of bringing in um, that umami sort of note. I think things like mustard are brilliant. They have, you know, they have that heat, but they also have that kind of rounded, mm. you know, I think umami is just that flavor that you can't 
quite put your finger on, isn't it? It's that flavor that kind of, you know, you've got all your other layers, but then the, the umami just kind of is like... You don't know what you're tasting, but yeah, it tastes good. Yeah, it's like the bass guitar. It's like you don't really <laughs> hear it, but it kind of just brings everything together. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think those would be some of my, like, you know, big hits. Like, um, I also think, like, I really, really, like, didn't like the idea of it when I first got a pot of it. But that nutritional yeast stuff, when yeah. you're cooking vegans... Is actually I also delicious. love it on popcorn. Yeah. I have a popcorn recipe in my yeah. popcorn and I'm just like obsessed with it. And I tried, so I made these cheesy biscuits and I tried, I'm not opposed to cheese, particularly like a good yeah. grass-fed pastured cheese mm. um, and not like eating a block of it. But I tried these biscuits and I tried them with cheddar like seven times and mm. the nutritional yeast gave it a mm. more cheesy, delicious flavor, yeah. which blew my mind. Yeah. And it's really rich in B12, which is one of the things that lots of vegetarians and vegans like don't have in their diet. So it's kind of a win-win. Um, and I think that brings like a, a really uh, interesting umami note. So. How do you use nutritional yeast? I use it like in lots of different things. Like my brother and sister are both vegans. Quite often, like if I'm making like a pasta situation where I would have put parmesan in, I'll kind of like just, you know, make something with that. I make mm. quite a lot of like, um, you know, Mexican food. If I'm making like, like a cashew cream or something, I'll add Start some of it to that. But equally, like, I think like sometimes when I like will just have loads of the ends of bag of nuts left over and roast a load of nuts with spices and then put some nutritional yeast mm. over for the last bit. And I do think it is, it's one of those great products that, you know, it sits in your pantry. It doesn't take up that much yeah. space. It doesn't really go off. Yeah. And it's like, it's like a flavor win. We were, I was talking earlier about like harissa that being another one of those things or, you know, the, the a, a tablespoonful of that. You can make a really, really, average like chickpea stew or have a pretty average hummus or have a sandwich without much flavor but a little slick of harissa and I love those things yeah because I think they someone has done a bit of the work for you and it just yeah. is a quick really quick easy fix so your sister and brother are both vegan were you guys raised in like a healthy household um I mean Yes and no. Um, we I spent the first few years of my life in in California in San Francisco, Ooh. so there was a definite kind of. Where in San Francisco? Um, I Do you know? lived in Palo Alto, Ooh. which was before like Silicon Valley yeah, and all of that. Yeah, before Silicon Valley really took off, so it was definitely quite a different place. But we were in and out of San Francisco a lot, and obviously that kind of um, you know the kind of health food sensibility yeah. there definitely rubbed off on us and my mom. My mom was always like no sugar. She was quite, you know, she, she cooked healthy food for us. She's not someone who in labors over cooking or particularly enjoys it, but we always had pretty, you know, pretty healthy food and no sugar, which actually meant that. That's amazing. At about 11, me and my sister were like, what, we can buy our own chocolate? And then we <laughs> went a bit wild, but um, we've come back around now, luckily. So, um, but I definitely, you know, we definitely had sort of a healthful lean, but I'd say we were a pretty standard family. It was very much kind of meat and two veg. Right. We weren't vegetarian, but my brother actually was the first out of all of us to kind of become vegetarian. He's been vegetarian for like 15 years, vegan for like mm. 10 years. And then me and my sister kind of for different, all for very different reasons, followed suit. And it's quite funny because it's kind of trickled upwards in our family. Now my mum and dad are, are vegetarian. 
mostly my dad will eat a steak like twice yeah. a year but apart from that he's pretty much and mom and dad eat a tiny bit of fish but it's really changed how they look at food and you know just by seeing how you guys feel with it or are I you guys like nagging them I or know, I think seeing how we feel we all have very different motivations mine has really been I love cooking this way my sister's has always been much more for health my brother's is very ethical um so I think they've seen all of our different reasons yeah. and and they're, in, you know, my parents are, I'm very lucky that they're, they're wonderful people and they're inquisitive people. And mm. so they've kind of picked up the China study, read those things. And, um, you know, I hope that I'll be as open to change when I'm like, you know, 65 yeah. <laughs> as they are. Um, but it's, it's quite interesting because often I feel like the family decisions around food are made from the top and trickle down yeah. and never really go the other way. So Although I'm cool. so impressed. I feel like there's been so many more like, I know because of like YouTube or what, but like mm. eight, 10, 12 year olds being like, I'm going to eat this way. I'm a vegetarian yeah. now. Yeah. And then they're like just sticking to their principles yeah. around it, which yeah. I think is fascinating. No, it's, 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 it's really cool. And I think, you know, we sort of all, I definitely think there are just these inherent decisions that aren't even made for you around food mm. like I didn't make the connection that animals are animals for a very very long time like that, that what you that, were that, eating that, that was... meat I was eating was an animal for for a very long time and you know I'm not someone that casts judgment on anyone's food decisions I feel like people have to do what is right for their bodies for their lifestyle yeah. for how you know the food they can afford so you know this is my choice yeah when I do see younger children making that connection in some ways, you know, I do, I do think that is a level of education we need to give to children, you know? So you started doing this recipe. Was that your first, the recipe development and all of that for Jamie Oliver? Was that your first sort of job job or how did that, it seems like a dream job. Yeah, it was a pretty dream job. No, that wasn't my first job. I worked, um, I worked in like consumer PR for a bit and I was kind of, um, that's like a different yeah, it was kind of a different angle, definitely. And because I did like an economics degree, which obviously has nothing to do with what I do now, um, I kept getting given like all the financial clients because I kind of understood the graphs. And do the you like and that sort of like the money world? Um, I do. I don't think the money world liked me that much. <laughs> I had a few what jobs in mean? like banks. And I mean, I think I'm just a little bit too free and easy for the money world. I okay. like used to turn up like six minutes late and they'd be like, you're six minutes late. <laughs> And I was literally like, no, I know the, the train was late and they're literally, you know, it was, no, it was just so you factor that in. It was just so hard line yeah. and it just wasn't my, my cup of tea. Um, so no, I was working doing consumer PR, um, which was interesting, but it just, it just didn't, it didn't float my boat. I wasn't like, um, passionate or engaged or really that into it. So I was reading an article one day in the paper about how you determine your calling and it was in, um, yeah, one of the British papers that said you turn your calling by which part of the Sunday supplement, you know, the Sunday papers with all the bits you turn to first. Oh my God, I love that which idea. Is such a cool thing. Because oh for my me, God. it was always the restaurant section. It was way before there was these big polished food sections within all of the papers. Um, but for me, it was always like the restaurant review. It was this amazing guy called A.A. Gill, who sadly passed away now, but this legendary British restaurant reviewer. And a kind of light bulb went off in my head. And I was like, of course, like, this is what I get excited about. This is what I've always done at home. This is what I've always done for my parents. Like I was that geeky kid, like, mom, dad, can you invite some of your friends around so I can cook them a dinner party? I mean, like literally who does that? So did I, you, how did you just rolling back to that? How did you know how to cook? 
Uh, my mum was, she's not like, as I've mentioned, someone who's really into cooking, but what she was amazing at is encouraging our interests. Mm. So when I expressed an interest in cooking, she bought me loads and loads um, of kids' cookbooks and loads and loads of ingredients. Oh, that's um, amazing. And so she like empowered me to like cook the family dinner when I was quite young. Not all, not She's every, probably nice Not for every her. night. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> occasionally she'd be like, yeah, you know, you make dinner tonight. So it was very much something that um, she was encouraged by her and by my dad. Um, so that's where I started. And actually, I think my mom, because... It was something I could do that was helpful. You know, my mom had a, had my brother when when I was about ten, so I think I could like so you're kind actually, of a grown up like, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I could help and do some responsible stuff, which I loved. So I think that's where you know the the spark really started. Like you know, so you hear this thing about like what section of the paper do you turn to, and were you like, all right, that's it, I'm going to culinary school? Basically, or? yeah, I got into work, so that was on the way to work. I got into work, and I kind of um, yeah, I like googled like cookery courses in london and this thing popped up which was like jamie oliver's 15 which was a restaurant that jamie oliver started quite early in his career where he took 15 young people from varying different backgrounds um it's still going now actually and he works with solely people from very disadvantaged backgrounds yeah it's kind of changed shape but um uh and the i think the the interviews were like the next day so I was like did like a bit of a cheeky thing bonked off work the next day went to an interview and they were like yeah come and do this weekend so I went and did this selection weekend which was so weird it was like half cooking half kind of like team building like like trust falls exactly yeah like here's 19 twigs build a bridge really and I was a bit like and it was all being filmed for a TV show as well. So I was suddenly thrown into this very strange situation. Wait, so when you um, went to the interview, were they like selecting you for the TV show? Yeah, they were They were selecting you to be one of the 15, but it was being made into a TV show. So. Oh, wow. So were they like looking for personality and like um, on-camera-ness, readiness and all of that? I think they were in a sense, but I don't think I actually maybe hit those notes for them. Just What because, do you think you hit? Well, I think they wanted people to like be naughty. People, they wanted people you know to create drama to like not show up so that like you know jamie could get mad yeah you know what tv companies yeah are yeah like. yeah um and i like absolutely towed the line like i'm so like, why do you think they picked you well i think they just it wasn't just the tv company it was actually people who worked for jamie who were picking as well and this this dear friend of mine now pete Begg, who i think just saw something in me that i was like really super excited and geeked out totally about food and i guess i had a few cooking skills so um yeah. And th- that selection weekend happened. Then on the Monday, they said, you've got a place the next Wednesday. So literally within a week, wow. I quit my job and I was cooking full time in the kitchen. So was, were you nervous? This is like a huge life change. I was a bit nervous. Like, I feel like um, if you could flash forward and be like, you're going to get a Guardian column and write all these books, it's yeah. one thing. But you there's no way you would have thought that was even a possibility back no, then, right? No. Well, I, you know, I think I've always been good at like, trying to set myself goals. I I definitely don't think then I'd set myself those goals, but I was a bit scared because obviously like I was earning a reasonable wage. I was going down to like a training scheme thing, which, you know, was not very much money. I was kind of doing something that, you know, I, I had quite like an academic sort of education and I was suddenly doing this thing which was like going to be a chef in a kitchen which no one had ever told me was like something that you could do as a job yeah um and so it did feel a bit funny also I was a bit like 
I, you know, Jamie Oliver was like this funny, this like big celebrity sort of chef guy. And, you know, he was definitely appealing to a, a certain demographic in the UK that perhaps wasn't me. So I was a bit like, what's this fit going to be like? Yeah. Is this going to be right for me? So I was, I was a bit nervous, I think. But I think more than that, I was, I was just really excited. I was just, I literally couldn't believe my luck when I was like in the kitchen. I was like p- repeatedly pinching myself. Mm. Like I'm just cooking all day, every day. And I just felt like I would pay you to do this. You so know? you were on this TV show and is that sort of documenting the process of it was learning just how documenting, to cook? Yeah, it was just documenting the process of how it worked with Jamie, like bringing in lots of different people and trying to take them from zero skills I had I guess a few few cooking skills but still very um you know homemade cooking skills into people who could run a restaurant um and it was I mean it was like a one hour special so it wasn't it wasn't any any major series series or anything um and it kind of came and went and luckily it wasn't something that um you know had a major amount of coverage it it had obviously had a lot of coverage because it's Jamie Oliver and he's a big deal but um yeah so I worked I did the 15 course and then I worked at 15 for a couple of years. And then I kind of saw Jamie's business kind of growing and um, changing. And I could see that he was writing these books. All all this stuff was happening in these magazines Mm. and there was this whole media outlet. And I think I just had a moment where I, I kind of like just sped forward in my mind a bit. And I just thought, you know, if I, the life that I want to have, which might include kids, it might include, um, you know, seeing my friends from time to time. It might include doing things at the weekends. I was like, I'm not sure that like chef life and how I want to live my life go totally hand in hand. I think a lot of people aren't aware of the hours that chefs have to keep, which are, I don't know how any of them have families, honestly. It's crazy. I did it for like three or four years and it was intense, but I only had to look after myself. I didn't really have, you know, I had obviously my mom and dad and my sister and brother, but I didn't really have any dependent yeah. people. And so I could give it my all, but um, no, it's definitely hard. And I, I just don't understand how, I think kitchens have changed, thankfully, but I think it must be really, really tough to be, you know, a mom or a dad of a very yeah. young child and work in a kitchen. Um, so I did that for a few years and then I kind of saw this opportunity to kind of move sideways into Jamie's sort of very fast growing business and help him with so did you pitch that? Were you like, Jamie, you need my help. Um, I'm the lady for you. Kind of. He, I think uh, one of the British food magazines called Good Food Magazine came in and they asked some of us to write recipes for this feature they were doing. And I was literally like, you know, like something went off. I was like, right, here's the opportunity. So I kind of, I loved writing. I've always loved writing. So I kind of wrote loads of recipes as well as I could, like took everyone else's recipes, like transcribed them, sent them to them and then said, can I help on the shoot? And then on the shoot, I kind of like just made myself as useful as possible. And then at the end I was like, do you want to give me a job? Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it, it was brilliant because it was, as I say, like a very fast growing place. So there was space to then jump over and, um, yeah, do some visual stuff and writing and things that I really, really enjoyed. What's Jamie Oliver like, like behind the scenes? I really want to hear that he's like a miserly depressed man because yeah. he's so <laughs> cheery and happy and like saving the world. And I'm just like, come on, give me some dirt. Yeah. I mean, there's really not, there really isn't that much. <laughs> there isn't really, he's just, he's a really, really good guy. Yeah. Um, he unfortunately seems that way. Yeah, he kind of, he <laughs> is kind of as he comes across. Yeah. He's just, he is, um, 
He's genuine. He genuinely so deeply cares about what he's doing, mm. about the recipes he, he and, the, and, and the kind of content he puts out into the world um, and about the kind of, you know, social projects and um, health projects that he works on. And I mean, he could very easily. I mean, he's a very wealthy man now. He could yeah, he could just stop. Sit on his laurels and not bother about like, Go to South France. you know, talking to the government about reducing sugar or sugar advertising or any of these initiatives that he takes on which are actually really hard they take a lot of energy from his staff and um yeah you know he's just he's just a really good guy and he was really good to work for actually he's one of those people who kind of um you know if you work hard for him he obviously has these incredible opportunities and access because he's you know a major worldwide celebrity yeah now. and especially um, i feel like in england it's such a small country and everybody does know each other. So mm. if you're somebody of Jamie Oliver's stature, like he yeah. would know everybody. Oh yeah. He literally knows, he literally knows everyone. I mean, he's, you know, he, he's on a level with like the prime minister. Like he's like, everyone knows him. Everyone. Yo, to most Lisa. people like him. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure they're in <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that regular contact at the moment, but that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> we'll do our Brexit um, podcast later. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, he's just a great guy and, um, you know, a real genuine so family was, man. Was he involved in you getting your first cookbook deal, your guardian column, or was that, how did that all come about? No, that was completely separate. So I, um, I basically did, for, I, I did a bit of work writing and doing some media stuff kind of on behalf of 15 and that initiative. And, um, met a couple of people through that who I think saw that, you know, I could speak coherently, which <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm really patting myself on the back <laughs> for that. You yeah, know that I mean, I guess I had that sensibility. Um and then this opportunity came up with the publishers to write a cookbook on behalf of a British brand called Innocent, who makes smoothies, who mm -hmm. were who were quite an iconic British brand. They were the kind of first British brand who kind of spoke directly to their customers on the bottles, like saying, Hi, you, this is your smoothie, rather than, you know, in a in a brandy way. So they were really quite pioneering and um they wanted someone to write a cookbook, you know, ghost write a cookbook for them. So yeah. I did that and then met my publisher and I think she saw something in me. She was like, these recipes are great. Let's do your own book. And it kind of went from there. So it was really, really amazing and organic because I didn't have to pitch. I didn't have to write any proposals. Yeah, amazing. Um, and I know lots of my friends who are really talented writers and write cookbooks um, have had to do that. And it can be quite a process. So, yeah, I am really lucky that this whole journey has been quite organic and um I know not sound like too much of a hippie, but it definitely feels like it was the right path. Like right. there the weren't any major kind of barriers or stumbling blocks in my, my way, which, um, yeah, I'm super grateful for. Did publishing the cookbook change your life? Um, I think it did change my life in quite a lot of ways. It was something I've always wanted to do. Like I literally used to do like cooking shows to pot plants in my mom and dad's kitchen. Like I think it's always been something in my psyche that I knew I wanted to do. So um, it was really empowering to have achieved something that I really, really wanted um, to achieve in my life. Um, it's definitely given me a different platform. Now all the work I do is is stuff that I really care about. So mm. when I worked as a food stylist and recipe rice before my book came out, I was still having to cook, you know, meat recipes, fish recipes, you know, work 
with brands who shall remain nameless who perhaps were didn't align with my beliefs and so it's definitely changed that for me um a lot of the work I do now feels very um hashtag authentic um but you know I I you know that sounds ridiculous but I that was a big shift and a big change and has really really um you know I'm grateful for every day because it's whilst I work damn hard it's um you know it's nice to be able to stand behind all of the work you do and and say, you know, with total integrity that you believe in it. Was there anything that surprised you about publishing a cookbook? How long it takes. I don't know why it surprised me because I worked on lots of Jamie's cookbooks and a couple of other people's cookbooks before, but it was always in a bigger team. So my cookbooks are me and, you know, my editor from my publishers. Um, and I think I... I thought that once I'd done the recipes, once I'd done the pictures, I was like, you know, this is kind of nearly a done deal now. But the rounds and rounds of edits, um, because cookbooks are so interactive, like every bit has to be right, you know. The um, like, like a recipe needs to fit the layout for the page and stuff like that, exactly. which surprised me. Like I had people, I didn't realize that like if a recipe was long and they had allocated like a certain amount, I had to cut the recipe just to fit the page layout, yeah. which is. Yeah, a little bit, which is. All of those little tweaks yeah. and my cookbooks have become larger and larger by about 50 <laughs> recipes every time. And so you don't really factor that in. You kind of factor that into the recipe writing process and the shoot, but then you don't realize that actually you're going to be spending an extra like 25% of your time on every single edit. And when there's eight edits, it's like, what? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a dream job. So I, I, I love every bit of it. But um, the, I guess, what, what else has been surprising? I think I was just not that I don't back myself because I put everything I had into my first book, book and I cookbook and I have in for every book. But I think I, you know, I, I put it out there with quite low expectations, like just because maybe I was scared of having bigger expectations, but I was just thinking, you know, my mom, a few of my aunties, a couple of mates might buy it. And luckily it really connected with like perhaps the zeitgeist of what was going on at the time and people connected with the visuals of it. So, you know, a, a lot more people than that have bought it. And so that, ah, that was a bit of like, <laughs> hold on a second. Um, you know, and I'm super grateful for that and seeing people that like post recipes on Instagram and cook the food that I've like come up with in my funny little kitchen yeah. for their family is like, you know, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a, without wanting to sound like too over the top, it's, it, it really is an honor, you know, that yeah. people are doing that. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. This episode is sponsored by one of my favorite food brands, Love Beets. You may have seen them in your local grocery store's produce section. They're in the cute little packages with all the little hearts all over them. We all know how good beets are for us. Their anti-inflammatory powers have been shown in study after study after study, but truly, they are so messy to prep. When you're done, your kitchen kind of looks like a murder scene. The first Love Beets product I had was their plain cooked beets, which are grown in the U.S., certified organic, and verified non-GMO. And these aren't like the gross canned beets of yore. They're just cooked beets, no preservatives, and they taste really fresh, just like a beet you would actually make yourself, which I'm super, super picky about, as you guys know. I keep a stash in my fridge and I use them in salads and often I'll put them in my freezer for smoothies. With some cacao, it essentially makes like a red velvet flavor that's so delicious. Recently, I've also been getting more into their flavored packs. The beet salsa is sweet and spicy and so good. I love throwing it on a stir fry or a grain bowl as a topper to elevate all the rest of the flavors. 
They have a ton of different fun flavors, wine and balsamic, honey and ginger, sweet chili, and even my mother-in-law, who honestly hates beets. She won't even make the beet recipes in the Healthier Together cookbook, but she will eat the flavored ones straight from the fridge. I think the wine and balsamic are her fave. You can find Love Beets in most retailers nationwide, including Whole Foods, Kroger, and Costco, and you can also buy their beet juices and beet powder online at lovebeets.com. You can use the code Liz, L-I-Z, like my name, for 20% off. There have been a ton of studies showing the benefits of beet juice for lowering blood pressure and improving athletic performance. I personally love to use it mixed with sparkling water, like a half-and-half situation, to make a beet soda, and they have a ginger version that's especially good for that. The powdered beet is also a great option for those red velvet smoothies that I mentioned. It is so, so good. You can also follow at Love Beats on Insta for more recipe ideas. And as always, you can DM me if you need recommendations or ideas for what to do with them. I'm at Liz Moody on Instagram. All right. I hope you guys love Love Beats as much as I do, and I cannot wait to see what you guys make with them. Now, let's get back to the episode. So shifting gears a little bit. You are vegetarian and that's actually like made you feel a lot better in terms of your health. Is there any other sort of like wellness practices that you do to feel good? I have a three-year-old son. So my wellness practices are less um, (laughs) prevalent than they used to be. Um, I've been doing a um, a kind of Priya yoga meditation and some asanas for about eight or nine years now. Um, Is that a moving thing or a breath thing? It's both. Um, so it's based in, it's called Isha Yoga, I-S-H-A, and it's based out of an ashram that the the guy who started it is this incredible, funny, uh, offbeat Indian guy who like drives motorbikes, but is also a kind of, I guess, a guru at this ashram, even though he's not the kind of guy who, you know, he actively asks people not to kiss his feet and doesn't want to act in that way at all. But yeah, so I've been doing that for sort of about... Yeah, eight or nine years now. And it's like a it's a little breathwork meditation practice and then some asanas as well. And when I did it almost every day for five years and I've felt amazing doing it since I've had my son, it's it's definitely more infrequent. But that's something that I do try and and, and definitely knit into my day. Um I just I definitely notice that it allows me a little more reaction time mm. between like shouting at someone out the window if they've like cut me up in the car yeah. or you know um it definitely helps um other things I think for me like quite often you know cooking can become my meditation like just trying to like turn you know have a quiet kitchen like turn all the music off and actually just mm-hmm. like really really connect um with the process yeah as the mom of like a three-year-old there's not that many other self-care practices <laughs> Has having a three-year-old changed how you cook at all? It has a bit. Um, He's very cute. I mean, I like him. (laughs) him. Um, Thank you. Um, He's not like the most adventurous eater, which has been a bit of a shock to me, actually, because I thought... He's three. Well... Yeah, but I thought he'd come out wanting your lemongrass. I I think I thought he would just be having like green smoothies, spirulina shots with me. I think I just I was actually quite ignorant about how sensitive children's palates are, Mm. and um, 
I just, you know, so many people have told me, well, if you just get them to eat everything, if you put it in front of them, eventually they'll eat it. And I can categorically say that that with some children <laughs> is not the case. Um, I harbor fantasies of when and if I have children, like telling them broccoli is dessert and getting them yeah, like, oh yeah. my gosh, you get to eat your yeah. broccoli now. Is that you yeah. can't do that? Um, I've, I've tried that. It hasn't <laughs> worked that well with Dylan, but um, I mean, maybe some kids would be into it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting because I had very little sympathy for people who mm. just said, oh, I don't like chili. Oh, no, I don't like vegetables. I don't like fruits. Like, I'm more talking about adults here than yeah. children. And I just thought, how can you, like, just give it a try? Like, stop right. being so kind of, like, you know, closed in your views about it. But having seen how sensitive Dylan's palate is and his reaction when he eats something that he doesn't like, it's given me a lot more sympathy for people who do have, like, aversions to stuff. And, um, you know, Dylan, it's funny because he, he was almost, when I was pregnant with him, I couldn't eat any of the things I usually eat, like mm. squash, kale, sweet potatoes, any kind of pulse, like totally turned my stomach. And now the things that I didn't want to eat when I was pregnant, he doesn't want to eat. That's so like, interesting. He was almost like tapping on my, like, you know, tummy from the inside being like, no, 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 mum, let's That's have a so pasta. <laughs> So oh, that's fascinating. And I, but I also like, he does have a balanced diet. You know, I'm kind of making this maybe for a bit of humor, probably more exaggerated than it is. He does eat vegetables. He does eat fruits. He does eat protein. He does eat, you know, nuts and um, some legumes and stuff like that. So, which is more than most humans on the planet. Yeah. So I think my bar for what is a really, really balanced diet is probably set pretty high. But yeah, I also think it's one of those things like all of us in life set our standards so high for so many things. And I think when you're a parent, those standards, because they're not about you, they're about someone else. They're yeah. almost more important and higher. And we can, there are so many things every day we can give ourselves a hard time about, aren't there? Yeah. And so I just try and be a bit free with Dylan and his diet and just think, yeah, you know. Yeah, good enough. Yeah, exactly. It's enough. He's hitting all the food groups and we'll okay. get there when we get there. So. All right. I have some cooking questions I want to yes. ask you. What are some ingredients that everybody should be using in their kitchen, but they're not? Oh, that's a really good question. I am using in their kitchen, but they're not. I'm just going to have a think about this and make sure I have a good developed answer. Um, I think one of the things that is a real win for me in the kitchen cooking quickly is like really great spice blends. Mm. I think lots of people have like different spices and they might have like, you know, a curry powder or something like that. But I think there's loads and loads of decent like spice blends available now from like that Razal Hanu. I don't know if you have that. Yeah. It's like a North African spice yeah, blend. Yeah, we have it. You know, to kind of uh, delicious garam masalas, to like Sri Lankan curry powders. And for me, they are a really great way of kind of like adding like a rounded flavor to something without having to either have 20 different spices in your cupboard or, you know, have to get like 10 jars down and put loads of little bits and bobs in. And and even, you know, like dukkha, which is a, a spice blend, you know, that has kind of hazelnuts or sesame seeds at its base. You know, I, th I think little pots of those are a brilliant thing to have around because even if you've got like some hummus or some yogurt or whatever else that you might be putting on the table to top things, you know, a little sprinkling of that on top completely changes what you're eating. So I'm really into those at the moment um, for my own home cooking as well, because it just kind of speeds things up and 
um, means that you've got a lot of flavor. I think. Where do you buy those? Just um, I buy them from lots of different places. There's a brilliant British company called Rooted Spices. Here, I know there's, um, I just saw a company in a, a shop down the road called NY Shook. Which, yeah, New York Shook, they're yeah, amazing. Yeah, they, they have lots of- I have of, them in my- Yes, they have great spice blends. They have a really amazing harissa, which I'm also totally in love with. Um, other things that people, I think people should be using in their kitchen. I mean, I think seasonal veg is a major, major, major thing. And I think perhaps we are in a bit of a food bubble. The pe- people like us who work in food and we think that everyone knows about seasonality and everyone knows that asparagus comes around in May and that strawberries are actually only in season for like two well, months. Because your grocery year. store wouldn't tell you that. Exactly. And it's not in their interest to tell you that necessarily because, um, you know, they can sell you asparagus all year round, but it's... I think up to us as consumers to kind of like ask those questions, even if you are shopping at a grocery store, you know, look at the label. Where is it from? Is it, you know, is it US grown? Is it flown in from Peru? Obviously here in the US, you have a much bigger catchment in the UK. We're teeny island. island. So, you know, we have to, you know, sometimes we, in the winter, I definitely buy things that have come from Spain and Italy because otherwise I'd be in Swede all year, which love a Swede, but... (laughs) And I, I think there's lots of humble seasonal vegetables. Swede is a really, really good example, actually. You know, if you kind of roast that whole, it becomes this delicious. I think buttery. Swede is not, it's a British. I think, is it, is rutabaga? I think it's rutabaga. Yeah. I was trying yeah. to remember. It's rutabaga. Yeah. Or something, you know, very simple like that, or a cauliflower, which obviously is a bit of an easier uh connect for people because so many restaurants here and in the UK have like cottoned onto this whole roast cauliflower thing but they're so cheap you can buy one of those incredibly cheaply put it in your oven you know cover it in spice I've got a recipe in 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 the modern cooks year for a kind of aloo gobi which is like cauliflower potatoes so big roasted cauliflower Mm. in the middle with a kind of coconut milk lemon mustard seed thing that soaks into all the potatoes Mm. and you know that that like you know, sheet pan dinner is so cheap. And I think, you know, there are all these far-fangled, like interesting kind of farmer's market ingredients. But actually, I think some of the really humble vegetables that we can buy very cheaply um, can be just as amazing. And what's your take on like the whole superfood scene, like ashwagandha and collagen? I know you said spirulina shots. Like, yeah. how do you feel about all the, the powdered superfood um, stuff? I'm not someone who really buys into that too much um i think for some people they can definitely be quite helpful i do think that ashtawanga and some of the mushroom the cordyceps things are actually those things have been helpful to me with like balancing out some like hormone um situations i had after dylan but i use them quite selectively and not all the time for me i'd much prefer if i can to eat an actual food uh, you know, meal and equally I'd prefer to eat a bowl of fruit than necessarily juice it into a juice or a smoothie. I do have smoothies sometimes just for speed, speed and ease and sometimes I feel like them. But um, yeah, I'm much more about kind of trying to eat like uh, the biggest rainbow of fruit and veg you can, mm. the biggest, um, you know, sort of rainbow of grains, legumes, pulses, you know, varying kind of like the bread you eat. You know, obviously all within the remit of like delicious homemade kind of like grass fed when it comes to dairy, eggs, etc. So, um, yeah, that's more how I look at nutrition rather than trying to bring in like powders and stuff. And I think um, 
I guess for some people it it really works. And what do you eat for breakfast every day? Um, I generally um, eat porridge for breakfast, oatmeal, oatmeal, <laughs> um, just because it's quick and easy. And with my son, he's really into it. So we eat oatmeal sometimes with like quinoa flakes, sometimes with oats, try and vary it up. Sometimes I do a mixture. Um, Dylan has his pretty straight up. Um, <laughs> but I'll, especially like through the winter, at the same time as I put the porridge on, I'll just like get some frozen fruit out, whether it's blueberries or cherries or whatever with a little dash of maple and vanilla. So mm. I'll just make a really, really quick frozen fruit compote and then we'll have, you know, it's quite fun because it, it's a breakfast that I feel like can be taken lots of ways. So even though we're having a pretty similar thing most days, we can like tweak it in different ways. With like different, different fruits, fruit. different seeds, you know, different nut butters, you know, bit of maple, bit of honey, you know, sometimes even take it down like a savory route with like, you know, some togarashi or chili oil or something. Mm. Um, that doesn't happen so often. I'm definitely a more kind of sweet tooth in the morning person. But generally that's what, what I have. I usually have like, I try and steer away from coffee um, just because it makes me a bit jittery and crazy. Um, but I... Like when I've been traveling over here this week, I definitely have been having some coffees because of the jet lag. I use coffee, I guess, kind of more medicinally than yeah. it is. Well, it is. A, it's a hugely powerful mm, medicine. Mm, and yeah. we, we, it's, uh, I had a professor once who said it's the number one drug addiction in the world. Yeah, and absolutely. I don't think we view it like that no, at all. No. And I know, like, if I drink more than one coffee, like, I'm just not a great person to be around. Like, yeah. I just, I, my, my, it creates brain fog for me. It does exactly mm. the opposite of what I think it does for some people. Yeah. Um, so, but I do like, I do like matcha or matcha, however it is said. I'm, so I'll have like, like an oat milk matcha and usually have that in the morning. Um, so yeah, that's my, that's our breakfast deal. And if you have 10 minutes to make dinner, what are you making? Mm. If I have 10 minutes to make dinner. So one of two things, I think I'm quite, down with like one pan pastas there's two recipes for one pan pastas in in my book one which is a spring one one which is a more wintry one and you literally just dump everything into a pan it might be over 10 minutes it might be like and then like the vegetables minutes. are cooking in the water so the vegetables too. cook in the water you don't use two pans it's like an absorption way of cooking essentially all the water absorbs into the pasta and it creates this kind of quite silky sauce mm. it's a different way of cooking pasta and i'm pretty sure a lot of Italians are like, uh, uh, uh. But I did do some <laughs> research on these recipes and it is actually an old Puglian way of cooking. And Puglia is very so, trendy right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I would make that or there's a recipe from my very first book, which is just my total get out, get out of kind of like trouble dinner. It's like, um, you know, just a can of black beans warmed up with some chipotle cinnamon. And then we just, you know, use whatever crunchy veg, avocado, make it in some tacos. And that is like, you know, the beans warm up in like five minutes. So that's, that's quite, and, and Dylan actually loves that. So that's, that's something that comes up quite often. <laughs> I think any, I think tacos are one of the most underutilized foods on the planet. Cause I'm just mm. like, whatever vegetables you have, whatever mm. beans, legumes, whatever you have, you can make taco. Like everything's Absolutely. good in a taco yeah, shop. Yeah, exactly. That's and that's like, yeah, I keep like, cause corn tortillas are not as widely available in the UK as they are here. There's a few businesses. You can get them at Oaxaca. Them. You can get them at Oaxaca, you can, and there's a great place called the Cool Chili Company that makes them. Um, but so I just keep a load in my freezer and then you can just take one at a time. On hand. Yeah. Okay. 
And then a few questions I ask everybody. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been somewhere in the world where you're like, these people really got it right in terms of living like a happy, healthy life? And if so, where was um, it? Yeah, I went to this uh, place in Ecuador quite, uh, quite a few years ago, just after I'd finished university and went to this valley um, called Villacabamba. Um, just sounds the town's fun. called Villacabamba, but it's like this, I think they, they called it, I don't know the exact translation, but it was something like the Valley of the Young. Mm. It was this, this beautiful, lush, green valley in Ecuador, this really sweet little town with a square, like lots of amazing fruits, um, lots of amazing vegetables, quite verdant, you know, and they could grow quite a lot of stuff compared to the other places in Ecuador and I guess South America. And, um, you know, they had beautiful jungly kind of countryside waterfalls and everyone mm. there just felt like so, it felt like quite a simple life, but it felt very, very happy. And yeah, it just seemed really chill. And when I think about that place, like just a kind of sense of calm just comes over mm. me. And I don't think I'm going to be moving to Ecuador anytime soon, but it was just, it was just a very, very kind of fertile in lots of ways place and just the people were so nice and actually since then I think it's been um picked out as one of those blue zones you know the places in the world that people live the longest people live the longest and are the happiest healthiest that's so cool so you you found it first I mean I I basically (laughs) discovered it yeah (laughs) I just happened upon it when I was sort of like mindlessly traveling around South America you have to go back with your family yeah 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 yeah. no I'd really love to go back one day yeah what is something that you've purchased that's made your life healthier or happier Mm, what is something I mean, I think my bike, I ride my bike around London Mm. a lot. You're brave. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know what? London is quite clever in that there's lots of little kind of alleyways. There's lots of places where you don't have to drive on the main roads because driving on the main roads is scary, 100%. But I drive like uh, my little boy Dylan to nursery on it. He sits on the back. It's like, it's super, super fun. Um, And it's a way of kind of getting exercise into my day without having to you know get my sweatpants on and go to the gym or lift do you work out yeah no I do I do I do a bit of yoga and then I have like um I've actually just started working with a trainer just because I am not that disciplined I'm with exercise and I think definitely my self-care is quite often the bottom of the list and it's I I, I'm very aware that it shouldn't be so I've started working with a trainer doing lots of weights which I really really enjoy Mm, I really want to try weightlifting but I haven't taken that step yet no it's really and I think um it's so great for female health as well because you know for bone density and all of those things you know later on in life so I'm just really conscious that actually that um it will be a really good investment for me you know, long term. So yeah, but I'm really enjoying it. I didn't think I would enjoy lifting weights. I was like, what? But it's it's really fun. What do you think is the best way to spend 20 minutes every day? The best way to spend 20 minutes every day? Um, I think having like a really connected conversation with the people that mm. you care about. I think we can all just like flip through life and, um, you know, especially in the phase my husband and I are in now, you know, it's like, who's picking up Dylan? Who's doing this? Who's doing that? Who's doing the other? But to actually like sit down and really connect with people you care about and really like just, you know, even if it's five minutes, just really work out where they're at, what's going on with them. Are they okay? You know, and that could be five minutes with like 
a few different people who are important in your life. You know, it doesn't have to be like a partner or family. It could be work colleagues. It could be, you know, a friend who lives far away. And I think that, you know, if it can be done over food, kind of all the better. But I think that is something that we are kind of like lacking a bit now because everyone just is in such a hurry, you know, and um, I crave that connection. I had a therapist once who told me instead of asking just like, um, how was your day to ask like a specific question? Mm, like mm. what happened with this thing today? Or what yeah. was the most exciting thing that happened to you mm. today or something like that? Mm. And I found that that's led to so much more connected conversations yeah. versus just like, oh, it's like fine, like whatever, you know, mm. like I inviting mean, people. That I've really realized that with, with my son, if I mm. ask him like how his day at nursery was, he was just like, it's like, he can't, he always can't, he can't. It's too much. It's too much. He yeah. can't say that. And I think for us as adults as well, how can you like sum up in a sentence? Oh, my day was like really great five minutes, like so totally. horrible for like 25 seconds when that man was like really horrible to me on the, uh, on the subway or whatever. Um, so how can you, uh, and I do think, but when I ask him like, who did you play with? Like, did yeah. you, how was the playground? Like, did you find any worms? It's like, Oh my gosh, I love the idea of like relearning conversation yeah. from a three-year-old yeah, essentially. It is. It's like the journey of being a parent is 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 little kids just shine a spotlight on 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 you and and, and absolutely are your teachers. Well, I consider Dylan totally my teacher. I mean, most of the time. When he doesn't want to go to bed, like there's less teaching going on. Which is but, fair. You know. All right, last question. What is one mistake you've made in your life and what's one thing you really got right? Okay, that's a really good question. So one mistake I have made. Um, I think one mistake I've made is perhaps not valuing the people, the relationships that I have created around work enough. And I've definitely remedied that over the last few years. But I think when you work quite hard, you spend more time perhaps with the people that you work with than you do with your family or your partner. And I really think that those relationships are so important and should be given, you know, almost as much gravitas as the other relationships in your life. You know, you don't, you know, with your work colleagues, you don't kind of sit down and say like, are you okay? Like what's going on? Like, how can we remedy this? It just kind of, you're supposed to just like work with them and everyone's supposed to be okay. And well, and you dismiss have... them. You're like, those are just my work yeah, friends. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is definitely one mistake I made early on that I didn't like understand how valuable and how formative and how, um, much part of my life those relationships were and I think that meant that you know it just became much more difficult to work and I think if I'd started from a place of openness from a place of like appreciation from a place of um treating that person as I would my mom my dad my friend I think it would have it would be um yeah and that's what I do now you know I invest as much emotionally in in my work relationships as I do with my other relationships and it works out so much better mm. um one thing I guess I've done well um I think I, in a few times I've been quite brave at reaching out to people who I really really admire and just saying I think you're great I love what you're doing like can I meet you learn off you um yeah, kind of engage with you. And I've been really, really amazed. You know, this was long before like I've written any cookbooks or had kind of like anything like that going on. But I've always been really amazed by people's kind of generosity. And that kind of 
you know, you don't ask, you don't get. It's like a horrible phrase. But I think sometimes if we have like the bravery to ask and to actually step out of like the comfort of where we are and say, you know, I love what you're doing. Can I learn from you? I think it it's a really, really empowering thing. Are there steps specifically you would have to that? Because I think a lot of people would love to do that, but they're like, this person's super busy. Like, what do I ask them for? What do mm. I offer them? Like, what what is mm. what does that actually look like? Well, I think quite often I've like emailed people and just said like, hi, I really respect what you're doing. Um, you know, I'm around, I'll come and work for you for free for a day or a couple of days. Um, or like, I think I've just more packaged it like that. And I think I love um, that because it's not just like take the time out of your day to have lunch with me and give me advice. It's like, I will work with you for a few days for free mm-hmm. and I will learn all the stuff yeah. you have to teach me in that time. Absolutely. And I'm I'm a big advocate in people being paid for what they do. I think there's only a certain amount of time you should give for free for sure. But um, I think definitely relationships are much more built when you're kind of like round a table, like putting peas or, you know, clearing up like a room full of crap after a shoot or something yeah. you know that's much more bonding than kind of sitting necessarily over a coffee and kind absolutely of like asking someone questions so i love that well thank you so much for taking the time to be here oh, today, it was such a nice conversation i really enjoyed it wonderful um how soothing is her voice her accent is just stunning i want to just like lay back on my couch and let it run over me like cold water and bring me to a place of zen and happiness and also she just shared such wisdom and inspiration you can tell that she deeply loves food and deeply loves flavors and she definitely inspired me to get into my kitchen and play around with some spices and play around with some cooking techniques so I hope she really inspired you guys too if you are inspired and you do make anything from this recipe definitely tag me on Instagram and tag her on Instagram so we can see and we can share it and we can enjoy that you got something real and tangible that you can bring into your lives out of this episode and if you did enjoy the episode if you wouldn't mind leaving a little rating or review on iTunes it massively helps the podcast and it's always so so appreciated that's it for today i can't wait to see you guys in two weeks with a brand spanking new healthier together episode have a great one guys love you taking care of your health isn't always easy but it should at least be simple that's why for more than five years now i've been drinking ag1 It's just one scoop mixed in water, and it makes me feel energized and focused without any kind of caffeine jitters. I discovered AG1 after a ton of research because I was looking for one simple habit I could incorporate into my day that would support my entire body and cover my nutritional bases. No matter what the rest of the day looks like, I know that I'm getting essential brain, gut, and immune health support. I just mix a scoop of AG1 into my water. I think it tastes delicious too, which I know people are always nervous about, but I think it's like a tropical vanilla flavor and I crave it, especially because I associate the flavor with feeling so good. Of course, we're always trying to eat our fruits and vegetables and balance meals over here, but nobody is perfect. So AG1 helps support me with 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, and adaptogens. I especially love it for all of the travel I've been doing. I think it's a huge reason why I still feel so good and have avoided getting sick despite being on a plane a few times a week for so much of this year and having to eat out so often. AG1 is rigorously third-party tested, which you know I always look out for. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything. AG1 is one of the highest quality products to elevate your health, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. 
So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash Liz Moody. That's drinkag1.com slash Liz Moody. Check it out. 